recorded live. I don't know. Let me see if I can do the music. Uh, oh, I can't. No, I can't. But no, I can't. But uh, anyway, uh, that was a good try. No, it wasn't. Uh, welcome, everybody. Of course, this is the flagship show, the NGSC Weekly, and I am your. Sounds weird to say, your guest host, your old host of the show. <coughs> yeah, Ralph Garcia, CEO of the. NGSC Sports. Uh, I'm joined today by uh, John Doucette as uh, Josh Zimmer, your host of the flagship shows, uh, taking care of some personal business. So we'll give him some time. And Montel's doing some undercover stuff. So undercover, we can't tell you. But before we go to John, let me remind you that you're listening to NGSC Sports Radio. Hear us live right now on NGSCSports.com. And don't forget to check out our podcast on iHeartRadio, Spreaker, iTunes, TuneIn, and more. Check out our website, NGSCSports.com, to read up on what's going on in the sports landscape. Follow us on Twitter at NGSC Sports. Like us on Facebook. You know the page, NGSC Sports. I knew you knew that. We're on LinkedIn and Google Plus, too. That and so much more. NGSC Sports. We never stop. Welcome, everybody, again. It is uh, Wednesday night, and this is the NGSC Weekly, and I am joined by my good friend and co-host, John Doucette. John? Ralph, it's always good to be with you. It appears that I'm the only one that made it, however. That's okay. John, I'm drinking a cold one in your honor. Ah, thank you. It's uh, watermelon citrus sandia. Sandia Citrico. Wow. Uh, that's an interesting mix you put together. Yeah. Well, Gatorade made it, so I'll give them all the credit. By all means. You know, you, you should find a way to get them to uh, supply you with some. John, you may have to work on something like that, okay? I mean, think about it. Jeez. Uh, sounds, like sounds like a plan to me. Well, are you giving them a free plug? It's the least they can do. Yeah, you know, I shouldn't have done that. I'm going to catch heck from number two. Uh-oh. <laughs> Sorry, sir. I didn't mean it. I meant I meant a drink that I was drinking here. John, I'm going to ask you a question, John. You know, we, again, we, here we are, you usually with the young guys and, you know, I'll miss you guys in the blend that you and I used to bring to the show with the young guy himself, you know, and it was just us two. Uh, older guys with the one young guy. Now you found yourself the very much more mature guy with two younger ones. But today we bring our flavor black of yesterday. And thinking of yesterday in the sport of golf, you know, we didn't really get to see the, the wars. The, you know, a lot of them, I would guess, Nicholas Palmer got 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 some of it. You know, Gary Players of the world and, you know, Faldo, and I mean, we can continue on with the names and the tradition. The tradition, as they say, is the masters, the tradition of golf and the game that it was. And somehow, somewhere along the line, John, it looked like, uh, for me, just the way I see it, you know, back then for us, again, everybody remember and those listening that understand, no, no, forget social media, forget Twitter and Facebook. We didn't even know what the word computer was. We didn't even, it 
John, I don't even think it was a word in the dictionary, right? Not until, say, 1978. Right. So uh, for the most part of our childhood, you know, uh, you see these Facebook posts, John, that show a cute one today that showed uh, an actual pay phone. Uh, That that was our smartphone, our uh, uh, Wikipedia, uh, our Google search, of course, was a library, showed encyclopedias, uh, different time back then. And golf itself, we've seen evolve to a game that, you know, recreational game that had a professional league, but how do you compete with, how do you compete with football? How did you compete with baseball? Great American pastime. You know, golf did its thing like racing and other sports. And then along came a young man named Tiger Woods and, Remember, we see the videos, John, back when he was a little kid with his dad, and he was learning, and and one wondered, and then you know he came aboard, and we remember that master's performance, and you know watching him win sometimes, John, was just wow. You know, we know it's over; it's been over since like the second hole on Thursday, but we're just gonna watch this thing and see how it plays out. And I ask you, John, you you remember? Tiger Woods and a lot of the things that he he'll always be remembered for, and, and I'm not talking about the bad personal stuff, but the fact that he was a very vocal golf player, that he was very emotional, that he had no problems hiding his emotions and saying words that were a little over PG rated. Now with everything that's happened to Tiger throughout the years, you have an older Tiger, calmer Tiger. They say a more fun tiger, a more open tiger, a tiger willing to laugh at his own self. But I ask you something, John. Tiger Woods shot an 85 and finished the worst golf weekend of his career by far. As a matter of fact, John, the only time you would have ever imagined saying Tiger Woods and 85 in the same sentence would be if we were still alive to say that Tiger Woods just turned 85. Could you imagine Tiger Woods 10 years ago, 2005 on this course, shooting an 85? My only question to you, John, is would there be any golf clubs left and would the caddy still be alive? Probably no to both of them. I mean, it's a a course that he dominated for, God, a a pretty good stretch of time. And there have been a lot of courses that he's dominated through a a pretty good stretch of time, but let's face it, those days have probably come to an end. Uh, it looks like the body has broken down. It looks like his uh, his mechanics have also broken down to the point where he just, it doesn't seem can consistently fix them to the point where he can return to where he once was, which was dominating the tour and generating the kind of ratings for the networks that uh, uh, really brought golf into the uh, the living rooms of more people than I think anyone could have ever imagined. Uh, the corporate sponsors that jumped on board as well, uh, a variety of things that Woods did for the game of golf that I think uh, is going to be very difficult for anyone to duplicate or even do better as time moves along. But uh, I do think that uh, the combination of his own physical well-being and the mechanics of his game, I think, have gotten to the point where it just might be non-fixable. Well, here's here's another thing for you to chew on. John, we know how the game of golf is played. Men and women line up with a bag full of clubs, and they have balls, and 
golf balls, that is, and along with balls, and they take to the to the to the grass and they they hit this ball for eighteen holes and they do it for several rounds and you know when you look at this game and actually I, I have I, I, I forgot where I was going, John. I was going to a really good place here. I was going to a really get it back. Get it back. Yeah, I was really going to a good place here. And then I started and I realized I told myself in my head, do you realize what you're doing? You're babbling, trying to figure out what you were talking about. And since you told me to step back, John, I remembered. Oh, good. So golfers played along these holes. And on Sunday morning, every Sunday morning of a tournament, some man or woman is in last place. Somebody has to occupy that spot, unfortunately. And I can only imagine, John, on any course, be it a major or minor, regardless, recreational, whatever it is, you really don't want to be the person that's walking up 18, uh, finishing your round, finishing the tournament, basically. (laughs) Well, you're doing it about 7, 8 a.m., depending on the time where you're at, and uh, you're all by yourself, you know, and who the hell's going to get up and watch this? But as you... Look closely as Tiger made his way to the 18th hole. The fans were rose deep. These people got up and they went rose deep to see this man finish the worst golf weekend of his life. And it goes to show that even a bad Tiger Woods, John, is so important to the game of golf. It's gotten to the point now. We're watching what was supposed to be, it's 2015. You figure by now, Tiger Woods has got what? 20, 21 majors? In that neighborhood, yeah. He's extending the, the record that will never, ever be caught. This is a guy who hit the wall at 14 and crashed. And no matter, it's gotten to the point now where it's good enough for us to just, let's just watch because it is Tiger Woods. And as bad as it is, you figure that maybe one morning he's going to wake up one of these weekends and even just for a weekend figure out what golf was all about. He may, and I do think that that's what people are probably hoping to see one more time is him figure it out and play the way he did when he dominated the tour for that uh, that long stretch of time. But I just, uh, I have doubts that that is still left in him. I think you should send a, know, a little card to Butch Harmon and say, uh, Dear Butch. But that's not going to happen, John. No, it's not. <laughs> it's not. not. History shows that's not going to happen. I'm sure that Tiger Woods swallows a whole bunch of different uh, desserts and meats and foods and a lot of gulps of water and juices and drinks, but pride is probably not an ingredient in either one of those. It would have been interesting to watch his mindset and to watch how he acted on that course by himself Sunday morning. That would have been one of the most fascinating things to do in a lifetime, just for a few hours. That was really good, John, because just to think, just to look at him, to imagine and see him and wonder what's going through his head. I'm in a place I've never been in. And I never imagined I'd be in. 
And even worse, nobody else did either. Right. Which brings us to another sport that we watched as kids. And, and again, you know, you and I from the Northeast remember looking forward to Saturday and the wide world of sports. What was going to happen that day? And that's when boxing was free on free TV. Of course, I think the definition of cable back then, John, was a, a wire maybe encased in some kind of, you know, or, or, a, or a cable that carried or held or lifted something. Yeah, that's, that's about right. Yeah, or, or a box that uh, was probably too big for what you were intending to use it for. Okay. Uh, cable definitely had nothing to do with TV. No. Yeah, in all likelihood, yeah, that that would be true. Yeah. Yes. In our childhood, cable cable was not associated with TV. Right. So, so we got to see things for free, folks. And one of the things that you still get to see for free once a year, well, three times a year, but on one one weekend, three races is the race for horsing horse racing's triple crown. John, you and I have the privilege as far as horse racing fans across the world to have lived in the 1970s when in 1973 horse name I don't know name name passes me by John I have no idea do you remember that horse in 73 are we talking about secretariat we must be talking about secretariat 31 lengths uh, th- this was a horse that all trainers and you know what? Forget the trainers. The horses in their stalls had to know w- what post was secretariat in. They had to just look over and say, and then look at each other like, oh, "Y'all know we're racing for second place, right?" Because he was unbelievable, and of course, we had the privilege four years later and. 1977, as Seattle Slew yeah. took the Kentucky Derby, of course, the Preakness and the Belmont to claim the Triple Crown. And lo and behold, we were lucky when, to me, the greatest battle of the three, as I remember closely, not only affirmed winning the Triple Crown, but another horse beside affirmed that just couldn't beat. Affirmed, and you remember John, the name of Aladar. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Oh. And I, I'm sure how frustrating it must have been for the trainer, for the uh, for the jockey to come so close those three times, and yet only unfortunately one, have to deal with the same fate. Only one horse had a shot at Affirmed. Not only a shot at Affirmed, there was a horse out there that could beat Affirmed. That was Aladar. Unfortunately, mm. unfortunately. On uh, Aladar's three biggest chances, he came up literally short, just short each time. And so 1978 turns to 1988, 1998, 2008. The decades continue to roll by, and horse racing not only doesn't see a Kentucky, uh, excuse me, a Triple Crown winner, but it then goes through a phase, John, where there are 13 horses with a shot at the Kentucky, excuse me again, the Kentucky Derby, with the shot at the Triple Crown, only to fail. 
Bob Baffert, trainer of American Pharaoh, legendary trainer, not just because you're going to notice him from his white hair and his sunglasses, but the fact that this is a legendary, this is a legend in horse racing. The, the guy has taken three horses to, to that pinnacle there, and, and, and those last three horses just couldn't make it. And John, all of a sudden, last weekend, it was a beautiful day at the Belmont Stakes, and American Pharaoh basically whooped the other horses' asses. Uh, that was pretty simple the way it was done. I, you know, I, I, I'm looking at the beginning, and when you, you look, you heard the call. But when I heard recaps of it, I heard certain uh, uh, broadcasters, announcers, and others saying, "Well, as you see, uh, American Pharaoh had to squirm his way to the front, and then it didn't look like American Pharaoh had to do any squirming to me." It was like American Pharaoh and its jockey said, okay, go here, go left, go right, go over here. Okay, home free. John Doucette, 37 years after we witnessed it three times in one decade, American Pharaoh brings home the Triple Crown. Yeah, I, I don't think people really do appreciate how difficult it is to pull this off. Uh, and, and I think the 37 years in between the two Triple Crown winners, I think, is is a a clear indication of just how difficult winning the Kentucky Derby and the Preakness and the Belmont happens to be, how lucky you have to be, how skilled you have to be, not only the horse itself, but the jockey that's on the horse to be able to, uh, to pull this off the way that uh, it was done this past, uh, this, uh, past Saturday in upstate New York. Um, in American Farrell now is, is, a, uh, is one of those horses that uh, is going to live, uh, live on forever, uh, there now seems to be the question of, of what he, what the horse now does. I mean, do they, do they run him in November, uh, or do they just decide that uh, putting him off the stud is really the best thing that uh, for the horse and, and for everybody involved? Uh, I, I guess it'll be interesting to see just how the rest of the summer plays out for the horse. But uh, to me, he's already, he's already achieved and done what the, really every horse trainer wants to have, and that's a triple crown. So. Um, I guess if you run them again, it's just for the opportunity to let people see the horse run one more time. John, before we leave uh, this and go to an interesting topic, we'll talk before we get our guests. Then we'll be joined uh, soon by Lake Lewis, Jr., the CEO of Sports Journey. Really interested to talk to him shortly. John, I have a question for you. It's going to be a little direct, but it's going to sound like it would come from me. So, And we're live on the air, so you know I'm just going to go ahead and do it. Okay, John? Sure, go right ahead. John, you just won the Triple Crown. You have just won the most coveted piece of respect that you could get in the horse racing business. You have won the Kentucky Derby, the Preakness, and the Belmont. And your reward for that is to race again or have sex for the rest of your life at $100,000 a pop, John. <laughs> yeah, I think the latter probably sounds better than, than the former, doesn't it? You know it? what? I was going to have sex anyway, John, but now you're going to pay me $100,000 a pop. I'm going to make oh, no, $100 million, $200 million bucks. Ah, count me in. You can get some Well, money. again, I, I think that's what you know. every trader that gets involved in this business really wants is that, uh, that ultimate payday. But the only way to get the ultimate payday is to win those three races. And, uh, again, I, I think... You know, for the hardcore racing fan, I think they do understand how difficult it is to pull this off. 
But for those of us that are not hardcore uh, horse racing fans and really only watch these races just to uh, to get an idea or even a glimpse of what it might be like, we really don't have any idea of how difficult it is. And American Farrow may have uh, may have made it look easy, but I'm sure that the the time, the preparation, everything that was put into it to allow this horse to pull up what it did uh, was uh, was time consuming, uh, expensive, and uh, and difficult as well at times. I'm sure. John, if I ever die and I come back, and and I'm at, and I'm told that I'm going to have to come back as a horse and choose a horse in recent memory you want to come back as. I want to come back as American Pharaoh after the Triple Crown. I'll just worry about the sex and the money. Uh, well, you know, I mean, I wouldn't mind coming back as Secretary. I mean, after all, Secretary just blew everybody away by such a phenomenal uh, margin that uh, he he must have been the ultimate horse that any jockey would have wanted to have in ridden just life. once. You know, we've seen so many athletes, you know, and, and when we say athletes, we talk about humans. But, John, I know I don't have to tell you. One of the greatest, if you can't call them athletes and just call them a horse, one of the greatest spectacles, one of the greatest things my two eyes have ever seen was the season of Secretariat. That was unbelievable what they saw. They, they will never, there's never been in my lifetime, and I couldn't imagine that the horse gods could ever make another Secretariat. It's, no, no, I would agree. I would I agree with that. I don't think that's possible. And, and for those people that never saw it, you're just going to have to Google the video. Oh, take a look you at, uh, have to Google it. This was a yeah. horse. This was a horse. You know, if, if, if you compare it to a football season, and the horse was a football team, this was a football team that went out and beat you at the minimum 40 to nothing every Sunday. Every Absolutely. Sunday. Yeah. Every Sunday. Sometimes. I mean, I think, uh, what, what did he win? The Belmont by, what was it, 31 lengths? One lengths. 31 I mean, For those of you out there that have never seen a horse win by 31 lengths, please Google the Belmont Stakes from 1973 and 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 it's not so much the thirty-one lengths. Watch this horse because this horse looks like he's twice the size of every horse. It's like the most imposing horse on a track you've ever seen, and he ran so beautiful. Oh. And, and you know, and and the jockey that was on on him for those three races, I do think, probably doesn't get enough credit for the way that he just allowed the horse to really take him for the ride and, and not do anything really to uh, uh, any input to really allow the horse to win those races. It just wasn't necessary. All he had to do was just stay on the horse's back and, and let the horse take care of it himself, which is what Secretariat did. One of the most beautiful times and things we've ever seen in our lives. And we'll finish this first half hour of the uh, flagship show, which is the NGSC Weekly and uh, Josh wanted to make sure we talked about the use of virtual reality in college football. John, it's a very interesting article, uh, NFL.com. Brian Fisher, college football 24-7 writer, talks about fads and college football we know, John, about. Yeah, college football is about fads. Things happen, offensive plays, defensive plays, schemes, uh, coaches with different styles, flashy uniforms, facilities, facility upgrades. Everything changes with the times. 
All of a sudden, a company called Strivr, S-T-R-I-V-R Labs, uh, are offering this uh, technology. Uh, being, uh, they have uh, some schools, uh, schools including that are included that they're using uh, are Arkansas, Auburn, Clemson, the name of you. And what they do is they offer a fully immersive 360-degree view for players as they run through plays on a virtual practice field. And this was originally for quarterbacks, John, and they're saying that's now being utilized for other positions too. And uh, Brett Bielema, the Arkansas coach, told USA Today that it's, it's insane. This changes the game. And, John, we know that, you know, think technique, everything has to change with technology. But the Dallas Cowboys uh, became the first NFL club to sign for the services uh, with this company. And uh, Stanford coach, we were talking before the show, Stanford coach David Shaw, I uh, read his quote. He says, there's no stopping this. We know that. It won't be too long until it's all over the place. And, John, it's not like it's not like an innovation of a play that takes innovation from within. This is a computer module thing that now offers the kind of view and and, and advantage that has never been offered before. And I think they're right. This thing could be huge. Well, it probably will be. I think it's going to be another modern technology tool that. Uh... Every coach at, uh, at, at, at the college football level and every coach at the NFL level is, is probably going to, uh, to use to the maximum to uh, uh, give themselves better offensive and defensive uh, structure, game plans, and strategy, the whole bit. Uh, I think that uh, it's probably where the, um, the coaching aspect of the game is probably going. Uh, so uh, I think that uh, you know, head coaches and assistant coaches, uh, coaches in general, I think are going to have to have some sort of uh, computer savvy to be uh, a part of the profession, whereas uh, uh, in the past it was really just about uh, X's and O's and your ability to be uh, somewhat creative and imaginative. But I think that uh, with modern technology being what it is today, uh, that coaches are now going to have to be a lot more computer savvy uh, with uh, their approach to uh, to how they put their teams together, how they manage things, because that's really where this is going. And what it made me think of, John, was you know, we've talked before and we've talked hard, you know, especially when I was doing the show about the NFL and what's, what it was and what it, what it was becoming, the bad things that were happening, the image reconstruction that they are still going through right now. We talked about the fact that we asked ourselves, what's going to happen to our game in the future? We start wondering about these things. And when I read this, it's one of the first things that I thought of about now an innovation, a new angle to the game that has nothing to do with homeless enhancing drugs or any kind of... This is something that uses the technology of today. And for me, makes me think that, I don't know, John, this could be something good, not only, of course, for the use that the players, coaches, and teams are going to use it for, but for the fans and others who follow the game, maybe in a way to help, I don't know if I'm stretching it too far, save our game. It's just be brand new. I don't know if it'll save the game. I think it'll certainly take it to a level that at the moment we don't realize, uh, and it may eventually affect uh, those that play high school as well. I would think that this program probably is going to uh, to eventually find its way to the high school level and uh, 
you'll find those coaches having to become somewhat more computer savvy than they may be uh, at the present time. I, to me, it just this is where the game is going, and and I do think that uh, uh, the one concern I would have is that uh, you know football becomes uh, maybe too much of a video game and and not enough of uh, you know what we grew up watching, which was uh, you know playing the game actually on the field. Well, one thing I think maybe you and I not that we determine. But I guess one thing that you and I have talked and made clear to each other is our game has changed and changed for good. I like the way you said, of course, and I said it wrong. You said it better. It's going to change the game and take it to another level, a different level. And obviously it had to be expected with the changes in technology. But this is going to be very interesting to see how it works with game plans. I mean, how do you see the game? You've got coaches that go to the booth, coaches that prefer to be on the field, the film watching. I wonder how that's just going to change the end game. Well, I think it's going to eliminate some positions on a coaching staff because uh, you may not need to game film anymore just based on what the virtual technology can provide you. It may be something that can be eliminated. I also wonder if Uh, this type of technology is going to change the way coaches recruit. If they're going to recruit players that really fit uh, the technology that's being provided to them, as opposed to whatever skill level they, uh, they happen to possess. Yeah, that's going to be something. And this is going to be real interesting to see. And we're at the uh, bottom of the first half hour. And of course you are listening to the flagship show, the NGSC weekly with your host this evening, I am your guest host, Ralph Garcia, along with the usual co-host, John Doucette, uh, Josh and Montella are out this evening. So John and I are filling in and having a good time doing it. And of course, we've already talked a little bit about Tiger Woods and his 85 and how he would have reacted years ago. Remember the Tiger Woods that would have blown up? We talked a little bit, of course, about the tradition that is horse racing. Uh, the Triple Crown, American Pharaoh, and how special that is. And, John, you put it really good when you said, you know, you really need to appreciate this because you made me think we, again, talking about athletes and teams, and we talk about the San Francisco Giants, three World Series in five years, Chicago Blackhawks playing for possibly their third Stanley Cup in six years. We talk about runs from basketball teams. Michael Jordan, six NBA titles in eight years with the Chicago Bulls. Hey, folks, it took 37 years for a horse to win three races in a row, but not just three races in a row. They had to win the Kentucky Derby, the Preakness, and the Belmont. And if history doesn't tell you, well, there it is, 37 years. So it's got to be one special horse and one special trainer to be able to do what we've watched 13 other all horses try to accomplish over the last two decades and just couldn't do it. So uh, we are awaiting our guest this evening, uh, Lake Lewis Jr., of course, from Sports Journey. But in the meantime, you're listening to NGSC Sports Radio. Hear us live right now on NGSCSports.com. And don't forget to check out our podcast on iHeartRadio, Spreaker, iTunes, TuneIn, and more. 
Check out our website, ngscsports.com, to read up on what is going on in the sports landscape. Follow us on Twitter at NGSC Sports. Like us on Facebook, of course, NGSC Sports. We're on LinkedIn and Google Plus, too. That and so much more. NGSC Sports. We never stop. And as we wait for uh, our guests here, of course, remember, folks, as I always remind you, go to NGSCSports.com. You'll find a, a weekend filled with humor. Of course, halfway hilarity is NGSC Sports brand of humor. As Sammy Sportface uh, gave you over the weekend, Mr. Ed talks to American Pharaoh. Guys like us, John, clearly remember the horse. Yes, the only talking horse that ever showed up on television, yes. And it was a great little article because, you know, Mr. Ed got into an an argument with Sammy Sportface because he called Sammy Sportface a liar. And I got really interested to see, well, what what did Sammy lie about? And, well, he talked about how recently Sammy made reference in an article before that that, of course, Mr. Ed was the only talking horse. So he wanted to know from Sammy Fortface, so how was it that you were having a conversation with American Pharaoh? So it was really interesting to see, basically, uh, to read Mr. Ed undress Sammy Sportface and, and put him in his place and catch him in a lie. And so, Unfortunately, there may be too many people that have no idea who Mr. Ed is. And, uh, again, you're going to have to Google it so that you can truly understand and appreciate uh, what Mr. Ed can bring. A horse is a horse, of course, of course, of course. Unless his name is Mr. Ed. There you go. And uh, it was a show, folks. Mr. Ed, the talking horse. Never seen in color, for those who don't understand black, <laughs> black and white television. That show never made it to color. <laughs> no, that's true. It never did. No, it never made it to color. So Sammy Sportface then follows it up with, uh, again, halfway hilarity. American Pharaoh's publicist announced. He followed that up with uh, halfway hilarity's first letter to the editor. Not sure which editor he sent it to. Yeah, I was going to say, who was the editor? Well, whoever it was, he told them off. Ah, uh, yeah, and of course, pay attention to uh, the new one of the newest segments. Uh, I give you three times a week, or I try to give you three times a week. Last forty-eight. That's the last forty-eight hours in sports in the sports world, and I just try to fill in a little content filling for you folks, so you can have something current to read, something about what's going on in the sports world the last forty-eight hours. And you know, I give it in my opinion, basically. I don't worry about stats too much because, you know, you can get stats at a click of a button. I want you to spend time reading and thinking about what you're reading. It's, what do they call it? Thought-provoking reading. And, of course, today we uh, have our new article up from G. Stelio, Cam Newton and the Panthers. It's complicated. Uh, you know, John, uh, still as we wait for our guests, speaking of the Cam Newton situation, you know, again, we come from a time, I remember my dad always telling me the stories of baseball in the 50s, 60s, when, you know, when you had a good year, you got paid. And, well, if you didn't, you took a pay cut. And now it's give me a couple of good seasons 
or come out with a big enough name and you get paid. Granted, I am not begrudging any athlete from getting paid. If they're going to pay you, then go right ahead. But as G. Stelio put it in his article, and I, I read his first little paragraph that says, when the Carolina Panthers announced last week that they signed Cam Newton to a five-year, $103 million extension, folks, grab on to something, $60 million of it guaranteed. The predictable question came up. Is he worth it, John? $60 million guaranteed, $103 million? Yeah, it's a lot of money. It's a lot of zeros. And unfortunately, I'm not sure that uh, he has produced to the point where those numbers and those zeros uh, are warranted. I think that, uh, you know, teams are really you know, spending a lot of money without necessarily considering the, the consequences of doing it, uh, what it does to their, their salary cap structure, what it, it just does to their team in general. Uh, uh, there comes a time when uh, if you're going to spend that kind of money that there has to be a uh, – there's got to be a result that goes along with it. And I think for Cam Newton, uh, although there have been flashes of brilliance and there have been moments from time to time, I don't think it's worth $60 million guaranteed. And, you know, for the Carolina Panthers, they probably don't go – they don't want to go through the process of having to find another quarterback and, and begin all that all over again. And so you're hoping that by giving him this money and, and giving him five more years to really – give the organization and the fan base what they've been hoping for, which is the championship, uh, as opposed to the alternative, which is to blow it up and, and start all over again. And, and and that's my concern, John. Again, never begrudging an, an athlete from getting his or her money. You know, your lifespan in that sport is short, short considering the fact that most of us who get a job and stay a job are at that job for 50 years. An athlete's never going to play but a fraction of those 50 years. But my concern continues to go to what you said, and that is the fact that have these guys really, really earned that money? And, and for the most part, the answer is no. The answer is just plain and simply no. And, 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 and since you're up there in New England Patriots land, it, it, it's a question that it brings it brings a lot of curiosity to me. Well, you got guys like this getting paid money like this. Why doesn't the one quarterback, you know, there's one quarterback in the league right now. Peyton Manning, we know, is going on the other side. This is it for him. But there's one quarterback right now who continues to every year get on the field, and every year he gets on the field. You cannot look at his team and say that that team does not stand a chance to win the Super Bowl this year. That, of course, is Tom Brady. Yeah. Why is it that I don't ever see an article that says Tom Brady got a $100 million and $60 million guarantee? Well, he probably should have, but I think, again, you know, the, <laughs> the Patriots have kind of used his contract from time to time to help them with, uh, with their salary cap situation, with deferred payments and all the other creative things that they've done with it uh, to not only provide him with a chance to be paid, but also the Patriots with a chance to continue to give him a team that's going to allow him to eventually, uh, you know, write and complete the legacy that he is desperately trying to, uh, to have a, uh, a final chapter on. And, and I think that the, 
the ability of the team and the player to have that common goal and that 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 common bond, I think, is really what's allowed the Patriots to uh, to have the kind of success that they've had over the years. I do think that with some of these contracts, you just don't see that kind of cooperation between the organization and the player, and consequently, the success just isn't there. And 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 great point. But we know that it's going to continue to happen, John. Oh, yeah. I mean, let's face it. Owners are going to throw money at players because they feel that they have to, because they feel that there's a need uh, to keep them happy, to keep them within the organization, and hopefully the whole thing pays off in the end. Most times it doesn't, but there are those rare occasions when it does. And, John, uh, sticking on the NFL side, hold on. What's that I hear? Is that another 49er walking out the door? (laughs) Well... Uh, you know, that, that, that's an organization that I think has been in turmoil for a while now, and I do think that, uh, you know, whatever is going on in that front office and whatever is going on with that football team does need to be solved and solved quickly because uh, I think the fan base is going to get real tired of hearing these episodes and these stories, uh, I think, far too often. And uh, I think that that organization really does need to uh, not necessarily blow it up, but I do think that they need to set new rules, new guidelines, and come up with a new approach to uh, to allow this team to uh, uh, become something other than, frankly, a joke. Yeah, basically why I let in that way, John. And it's too bad too because I mean, let's face it: the 49ers at one time were very proud and and a very successful organization that was run the right way. It's a pity to see this this organization kind of disintegrate the way it has, and it just it seems to have spiraled out of control, and it. It just doesn't seem like there's anybody within that organization that knows how to even begin the process of turning it around. And, and, and going along those lines, John, you made me think about something else then. With all this that's happening with the San Francisco 49ers, let's talk about Cap. Colin Kaepernick, of course, a young quarterback who helped lead his team to NFC title games, the Super Bowl, who has transformed himself, unfortunately, into not that good a quarterback. Uh, where do you go there? I, I heard something intriguing, like well, at least the questions of do you now commit to this kid? I mean, it's going to be a rebuilding process defensively for San Francisco. I mean, they, they, they've just been stripped. You know, it's, it's, it's going to be very interesting because of the amount of money that you've already committed to him and the amount of that money that's already guaranteed. Again, this is, I think, another situation where a, a bond between owner or organization and player really does become important because that contract is probably going to have to be manipulated a little bit to give the 49ers some flexibility to be able to improve that defense faster than um, you know anybody would uh, would think at the moment. And if Kaepernick is not willing to go along with whatever ideas the organization may have with regards to improving that team and how they're going to find the money to be able to do that, then the 49ers are kind of stuck in mud. And, John, staying in the NFL is, uh, I don't know if uh, Lake's going to be able to join us this evening, uh, but staying with the NFL in the meantime, uh, I need a little help, John. Uh, Johnny Manziel is now living with his former high school coach. John, why do I give a damn? Well, because you're hoping that his former high school coach has the kind of bond with Manziel that's going to allow him the opportunity to turn the corner. 
I, I think that uh, it becomes it's become clear that Manziel is a guy that uh, on his own by himself is kind of a loose cannon. And I think that uh, by having him, I guess, room with his former high school football coach might uh, reel him in a bit to allow him the opportunity to, I guess, recreate himself in a more positive way. <laughs> okay. Uh, Johnny Football has turned himself into Johnny Soap Opera. And, and look, that's the, look, that is the, the chance that the Cleveland Browns took when they drafted him that this would unfortunately blow up in their face. John, a first round to some draft extent, pick, a first round I know, I, I, I understand. about making a bad move. I agree. But that, again, was the chance that they were taking. And I think, you know, for the moment, uh, it's kind of reared its ugly head. Uh, the Browns are trying to make the most of this. They're, they're trying to come up with ways to, to salvage this as best they can. This is another way toward being able to do that. Uh, but... Um, they're going to run out of ways and methods if Manziel can't turn this around at least somewhat on his own and, uh, and prove to everybody that he can uh, not only be accountable for his own actions, but basically take care of himself. Wow. Johnny football might end up being like a horse. Gets on the field for one season, never to race again. And it's a pity, too, because, you know, for those that saw the college version of him, uh, there was that uh, that flair, that excitement, that dramaticness that uh, I think the NFL certainly would have craved. Uh, but, again, there was the, the off-the-field part of this that uh, I'm not sure many people truly understood, but now that they're beginning to understand it, uh, that they're just trying to find a way to stay away from it. John, you've heard me say it since you met me, and I've been saying it for years. Kids, listen carefully if you play football on Friday. Just because you're a star on Friday don't mean jack. It has to translate to Saturday. Just because you become a star on Saturday, that you guessed it, don't mean jack. Because you have to translate that to Sunday. Somewhere along the lines, the translation for Johnny Football between Saturday and Sunday got stuck in neutral. And hopefully... His coach might be an answer. I got another. I've been using the word damn here for a minute, John. Here goes another one. The Chargers to retire Tomlinson's number 21 jersey. John, it's about damn time. Yeah, I would agree, even though the uh, um, it was kind of messy in the end, which led Ladanian to uh, to end his career other, other than as a San Diego Charger. But, yeah, I, I think that uh, this has probably uh, been a long time in, in, in coming. I'm sure that uh, – there was a bit of a, uh, a makeup that took place between the organization and Ladanian Tomlinson that would al- allow this to happen. But uh, yeah, I, I would agree. This uh, he was a terrific back for the 49ers, uh, for the Chargers rather. No, uh, there's no doubt about that. And again, we're talking about an organization that really um, didn't take advantage of the years that he was there. They didn't uh, uh, have the kind of success, especially in postseason, that you would have thought uh, with him in that backfield, the young Philip Rivers. Uh, Antonio Gates, I mean, some of the offensive weapons that they possessed. Um, you know, North Turner was was their coach for a while, and uh, um, although they could from time to time put up some pretty serious numbers, they always seemed to find a way when they got to the playoffs to kind of, you know, trip and fall over their own shoes. And um, it, it led to uh, some, some bitter disappointments for that team. But uh, I think LaDainian Tomlinson deserves his number to be retired in San Diego and, and maybe even – uh, eventual Hall of Famer if, uh, if that time presents itself. I don't see how 
I, I can't call him by his initials. The only LT I'll ever know. No, no, know, I agree, yes. The only yes. LT I'll ever know is Lawrence Taylor. I agree. But, uh, but there is, you know, he... Yeah, no question. He, yeah. That's, oh, that's a Hall of Famer, John. That, that guy did thing. He did some of the most special things you've ever seen on a football field. It, and I would think that part of this retiring the jersey is that the Chargers really do want him to go into the Hall of Fame as a Charger. And I think that... Uh, you know, being able to, uh, you know, come to common ground with him, you know, kind of mend the fences with him, I think was probably something that had to be done if, in fact, he was going to uh, uh, take his spot in Canton, Ohio as a Charger. And, John, I want to bring up uh, a couple of quarterbacks, get your feel on what's going on, and we're going to finish it by going into the Redskins talk we would have had with Lake, but I'm going to start with Big Ben. We remember the NFL draft when Ben Roethlisberger sat and sat and sat and sat and sat and finally got the call. And, well, anybody knows me, I'm not the biggest, well, forget I'm not the biggest Steelers fan. I can't stand the damn Steelers, okay? But we watched what Big Ben brought to Pittsburgh, Super Bowls, conference titles, uh, a player that, one of those, John, that you will say that, Big Ben probably played his way into the Hall of Fame early. He has shown durability. And he now says that this Steeler offense is arguably the best he's ever had. How much is left in Big Ben? I think it's probably enough to make one more run. I I think that that can legitimately be said. And I wonder, because even though I'm not a Steeler fan, you love to see these stories of these guys from that small school who get that chance, and he fell right into a great situation with Pittsburgh, obviously, and with his size and the abilities, especially that he has a young quarterback. I, I, I'm with you, John. I think that there's a possibility that uh, he can do something. And the next quarterback, John, they keep talking about Russell Wilson not being – considered or should not be considered as an elite quarterback. And for me, an elite quarterback comes in you know, many ingredients to an elite quarterback. First ingredient, of course, would be Super Bowls. And you go into stats and stature and whatever else that comes with it. Okay. So Russell Wilson's stats have not and probably may never come out and bite you. And you may not notice them broken down on the side of the road as they sit right next to you. But, John, the guy just missed in a blink of an eye winning his second straight Super Bowl. And uh, in case you missed it, folks, the Seattle Seahawks are one of the favorites to go to Super Bowl again. John Russell Wilson? Well, I I think he's one of the young studs that uh, when you start talking about the future of this game – you know, he's probably the first name that you uh, that that comes to mind that you put out there because uh, he has certainly demonstrated under Pete Carroll and in that offense that he is the perfect fit to run it. Uh, you know, their offseason acquisition of Jimmy Graham, I, I think, provides him with another weapon that uh, at least over the past two years he really hasn't had. Uh, so now you've got uh, outside threats. You've got you know Marshawn Lynch in the backfield. You've got Jimmy Graham now as a tight end. 
it would appear that the Seahawks can at least put up a, a ton of points if everybody can stay healthy. Uh, and that defense is still good enough uh, that they can stop most teams from uh, doing the same thing. So I can understand why people think that the Seahawks can make a third straight trip to that Super Bowl just based on the weapons that they have, what they've acquired, and just based on uh, uh, the entire setup that right now seems to be the best in the NFC. Although, you know, Aaron Rodgers is certainly out there suggesting that the Green Bay Packers have everything that is uh, um, necessary to make a Super Bowl run of their own. So maybe there is a team in the NFC that can give the Seahawks a run for their money, and it could be those guys that play in Green Bay. And then last but not least, we go to Redskins camp. Uh, Sean McVay is a new play caller in Washington, 29 years old. whole lot to learn. OTAs have already shown the weaknesses in the Redskins secondary. And I think, you know, of course, they did draft Brandon Scherf, prototypical Iowa offensive tackle, like the pick of Jamison Crowder, wide receiver from Duke. That was pretty good pick right there, and some others. But really, John, what the hell is RG3 going to do? He better do a lot because, uh, you know, they, they picked up his fifth-year option, valued at $16.1 million. So uh, they've already made that, that fifth-year commitment to him. You're talking about a guy who in his last 19 games is 5-14 and 14 as a starter with, with 18 interceptions and, and 20 touchdowns. Those are numbers that certainly don't uh, uh, give a lot of faith from the fan base in terms of the ability to at least be a playoff team, never mind one that can make a, some sort of a championship run. I do think that Robert Griffin III really does need to uh, demonstrate beyond a shadow of a doubt uh, that he is the quarterback that everybody thought he was going to be uh, when the Redskins had drafted him. And let's hope, John. Let's hope. God forbid the kid doesn't get hurt again. Well, I think that's the other part of it. I mean, uh, he's starting to demonstrate a bit of a a brittleness to him that I think uh, is concerning. And it should be concerning to to everybody involved with that organization and everybody involved with that fan base. And that's why I find it interesting that they were so willing to already pick up the the fifth-year option at $16.1 million as opposed to just having him prove it and then give it to him. You know, and when you have that kind of option that you just said right there, why are you going to hand the money? I, I don't care how big your name is. You haven't proven it. You haven't made your money yet. You haven't earned it yet. Why am I going to give you more? And, and you know, I, I think that's a valid point. I, I think it's a valid question to make. Uh, I, I do think that, you know, Dan Snyder has always been a big Robert Griffin III fan. I, I don't think he's made uh, much doubt about that. He's convinced that this kid can actually get them to where they want to be, even though it hasn't happened to this point. There have been some injuries involved. There's also been an offensive line that, quite frankly, hasn't done a very good job of protecting quarterbacks. I mean, last year, uh, that offensive line gave up a combined 58 sacks to the three quarterbacks that played for the Redskins last year. So uh, it's a combination of things that uh, has really uh, put the Redskins in the position that they're in in terms of uh, trying to make their way up the ladder as opposed to uh, pretty much being Uh, on top of that ladder. Again, though, they're in a division that I think is still as wide open as it was last year. So if they can, you know, put things together and mend the fences the way they need to be done, who knows? Maybe the Redskins could make a playoff run this year. But, uh, again, it's going to be based on Robert Griffin III playing 
uh, at least the majority of that season, if not the entire season. And he's going to have to produce. No, absolutely. Uh, I mean, you know, as I said, 18 interceptions and 20 touchdowns and a 5-14 and 14 record in your last 19 games is not the kind of production that leads one to believe that all of a sudden he's going to turn it around and be that star. Here's another damn for you. A damn sure don't earn you a $16 million raise. No, it doesn't. And, and that's, again, but again, I, you know, Dan Snyder being who he is and being the type of owner that he is, <laughs> yeah. is he's just going to throw that money out there. And, uh, you know, he's going to pay people that he believes is going to uh, eventually get him what he wants, despite the fact that I'm sure that there are people within that organization that probably tried to convince him not to do this, at least not yet. But he's not going to listen to anybody. I mean, it's his football team. He's going to do this his way and just hope it works. And so far it hasn't. Well, Snyder's proven that through over the years for sure, that he's going to do it his way. He doesn't care what anybody thinks. And, and we'll see how this works out. You just said it plain and simple. You know, you wait. You wait to see. If you don't have to sign that check, you don't have to write it, rather. Don't write it, much less sign it. But the deed is done. And, you know, we as football fans all hope well for RG3. It was an be- unbelievable rookie season to watch what he was able to do. Now, of course, looking back, was that smart? People could say, well, that's his way of playing. But you know what? Once again, that was his way of playing on Saturday. Exactly. And I think the way he played on Saturday wasn't going to work on Sundays. And unfortunately, it, it came back to bite him. And unfortunately, uh, the physical adjustments just haven't been made to allow him to stay on the field and, and become that quarterback that, uh, that people can believe in. No, and it's going gonna, it's gonna to work on your mind, too, John. You can't have the injuries, the type of injuries that he's had, and you just don't wipe those things away. Those things are on your mind. This is football. It's not baseball where you're sliding into a base or maybe you're going to hit, you know, your base path or you're sliding home or, you know, you're hustling for a fly ball. It just happens. You know, baseball's kind of laid back. This is football. It's physical. Well, again, I, you know, I think, you know, playing in front of an offensive line that hasn't necessarily done their jobs as individuals or as a unit the way that you would want them to do may also have played into some of the issues and some of the difficulties that uh, RG3 has had. And so I think that being able to improve that unit may go a long way toward helping him uh, become a better player and and at least restore some faith uh, for people to have in him. Hopefully they can get that done. Otherwise, it's going to be a long season. And you just wonder when it's all said and done how many heads end up rolling because of it. Yeah. That that was a great ending to that, John, right there. Basically, yes, who will pay the price in Washington? And with that said, ladies and gentlemen, of course, the first hour is done here. This is, of course, the flagship show, the NGSC Weekly. It's a show that started it all a little over two years ago. As a matter of fact, uh, about 10 days ago, we celebrated two years on the air. First, as you knew us as the National Gridiron Network. Of course, now is NGSC Sports. And, of course, you know what that means. That's right. You're listening to NGSC Sports Radio. Hear us live right now on NGSCSports.com. And don't forget to check out our podcast on iHeartRadio, Spreaker, iTunes, TuneIn, and more. Check out our website, NGSCSports.com, to read up on what's going on in the sports landscape. 
Follow us on Twitter at NGSC Sports. Like us on Facebook on our page at NGSC Sports. We're on LinkedIn and Google Plus too. That and so much more. NGSC Sports. We never stop. And we go back to the show right here. And uh, John, another thing, another thing I love to do with you, John, is again going back in time. Is you remember? way back when, the NBA Championship Series is what it was called. And in the 70s, it wasn't live. We had to wait until 11.30 Eastern time at night, folks, to watch the NBA, excuse me, the NBA Championship Series. Well, fast forward, to the late 70s. And I heard yesterday or the other day, John, that Magic and Bird actually voted no to have the finals, excuse me, the championship series shown live. Well, the networks won that argument. And we know what happened to the NBA. Along the line, we got to see the 1980s which was basically championships played by the Boston Celtics and the Los Angeles Lakers as they participated in eight of the ten finals that year. Or Fun was had by all in those days. Fun was had by all, John. We, we got to see some of the greatest players, Magic and Kareem, Worthy and... A.C. Green, what a defensive player he was. Kurt Rambish, you could count on him to die for every single loose ball. and not You could also ball. count on him to be clotheslined by certain players as he was going through the basket. Uh, yeah, you could count on that from time to time. He apparently got on some nerves back in the days. And, of course, there was always Larry Bird and his counterparts, his cohorts, Kevin McHale and Parrish, Ainge, Dennis Johnson, today, few, and the performances that we got to see, not even realizing, John, at that time, that you and I were watching some of the greatest basketball players that would ever live, also not knowing that these boys were changing, these young men were changing this game into what it would become decades later, this huge conglomerate called the National Basketball Association. And we watched in the late 80s as the the run of the Celtics and the Lakers ended it for a moment. And the bad boys took over, and that's when basketball with elbows and knees and, and headbutts took over. And Michael Jordan realized that he couldn't do it by himself as he continuously got pounded to the pavement by the Detroit Pistons. Eventually, Michael Jordan figured it out in 1991. He started that run that would see the Chicago Bulls win six NBA titles in eight years. And, John, I think it's safe to say, no disrespect to Clyde Drexler, Akeem, Elijah Juan, Rudy Tomjanovich, and you know, never, ever underestimate the heart of a champion that if Michael doesn't go play baseball, the Chicago Bulls win eight championships in a row and maybe more. 
Uh, I think that was a possibility. Yeah, I, I do think. Again, you know, I, I think for the Bulls, you know, the complementary pieces that they had, you know, Cartwright, Pippen, Kerr, Paxson, I really think, uh, you know, allowed Michael to be able to dominate the game the way he did and, and to win those championships the way he did. I think it's a possibility that if the Bulls could have kept the complementary pieces together, if they could have improved those pieces as time went along, yeah, maybe he could have gone eight for eight. And it was an incredible, uh, an incredible walk run to watch. Uh, and then, of course, as the Jordan era was coming to a close, a big guy, a really big guy by the name of Shaquille O'Neal was teaming with a young man named Kobe Bryant. And bringing championships back to the Lakers, and you know, didn't talk about all the stuff that happened between those guys personally. John, Shaquille O'Neal, and Kobe Bryant on the same team on a basketball court was about as deadly a one-two punch as it got from up top and down below. I agree. For everything they could do on the court, it's I guess what they couldn't do off the court that what is really what people remember, and that's too bad because. Uh, their ability to play a two-man game it, it probably is uh, better than anyone, any other two-man combination you could have come up with. Uh, uh, their ability to uh, to dominate both in the low post and 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 on the outside with with jump shots and with with dunks and, and the whole bit, I think, uh, uh, really you know set the Lakers apart in those days. It's just unfortunate that uh, you're also dealing with two personalities that frankly just couldn't stay in the same room together. No, no that was real hard. By the way. Folks, while we mention the list of great players and forget some of those that we won't mention, I just thought it was appropriate at this time to throw in the name Robert Big Shot Bob Ory, winner of seven NBA titles. Not talked about very much. Well, I think, you know, Robert Ory was one of those complimentary pieces that I talked about earlier that really did... Uh, in a lot of cases, to become the final piece to a potential championship puzzle. That's what he was. And I think that, uh, you know, his willingness to understand that allowed him the opportunity to have the kind of success that he did. And, and it was incredible because you knew if you weren't a fan of his Rockets or his Spurs or his Lakers, when Robert, when Big Shot Bob got that ball, I didn't care where it was. You better close your eyes because more than likely, John, it was going to hit nothing but the bottom of the net. But, you know, his his reputation was something that general managers across the NBA were well aware of. And uh, at trading deadlines, you know, he was always the guy that was well sought after from those teams that really did believe that they had an opportunity to win championships. And usually when he showed up on a team, uh, even as a rental, it usually paid big dividends. In the meantime, John, <laughs> when we talk about the 90s going into the 2000s, there was another duo that teamed up in the NBA Finals, this being the 1999 NBA Finals when we watched the Admiral, as we know him. David Robinson team up with a young man from Wake Forest named Tim Duncan, who would be later named or was named the big fundamental. And those two big men, along with others, 
along with their head coach, Greg Popovich, started a trend that saw the San Antonio Spurs win their fifth NBA title last year. During a span of 15 years, they could have seen and won a few more because it should have been back-to-back. It should have been their six. Unfortunately, it wasn't. In the meantime, I stated earlier that in the beginning of the show that we remember the pictures and the videos we saw of a, a little three-year-old boy with his dad with a golf club learning the game of golf. We would call that child Tiger Woods. And we fast forward decades later and we watch film again of another young boy, a young kid out of Akron, Ohio. We called him LeBron James. I remember footage of a 14-year-old LeBron James doing things to high school players that 14-year-old kids should have been arrested for. Except he wasn't doing it in the street and he wasn't doing it with a weapon. He was doing it on a basketball court with a basketball. And so the legend began and the weight began. At that time, NBA players, excuse me, high school players didn't go to college. They could go straight to the NBA. And so With the first round pick, the Cleveland Cavaliers, with about the same luck we heard in 1985 when the draft lottery ended, with the New York Knicks winning the rights for the Patrick Ewing sweepstakes, the Cleveland Cavaliers saw themselves with their hometown kid, the prodigy, the the young man who would one day be known as King James. And he took Cleveland to the NBA Finals, which, well, didn't work out too well for he and the Cavaliers. And we remember the press conference, the big press of the big show, John, that I guess people still rub people the wrong way forever, which, of course, LeBron James informed us that he was taking his talents to South Beach. He would go to Miami and win not one, not two, not three, not four, not five, not six, not seven, but multiple NBA championships. Okay, John, he didn't win those NBA championships. But this year, the 2015 NBA Finals began between the Golden State Warriors and the Cleveland Cavaliers. Yes, the Cleveland Cavaliers with their hometown prodigy back home. After four years and four straight NBA Finals, LeBron James finds himself in his fifth consecutive NBA Finals. By the way, so does James Jones, his teammate. He didn't play in one, but he's been with LeBron for five straight years. So let's give a little prop to James Jones, too. And he's been hitting a couple of shots. But, John, we've watched the career of LeBron James. When he went to Miami, he was doing it with Dwayne Wade and Chris Bosh, a trio that that would bring multiple championships to Miami. They did bring two. They were in four straight. But here in Cleveland, LeBron goes home and doesn't promise anything. And he loses his his good friend, Andy Barajal, loses Kevin Love. Kyrie Irving doesn't play a whole season because Kyrie has an 
history of injuries. And here we sit on the precipice of game number four, which somehow, John, some way, the Cleveland Cavaliers are up two games to one, and we are watching something that we may never see again with LeBron James. It is, it is just, John, I'll stop now by telling you, friend, we just talked four decades of basketball. When have you ever seen one man do what this one is doing? Well, it does beg the question, what, what, uh, what would you rather be, the, the greatest player of all time or, or maybe the greatest winner of all time? Um, look, I, I, you know, it, it, it's become one on five, and I think that uh, that's something that uh, really has, uh, I think, captivated uh, the basketball audience here. I mean, James really doesn't have a whole lot of help. You know, Matthew Delvadova has played well, especially with guarding Steph Curry. Uh, you know, Mozgov has done well in the paint, uh, providing some rebounding and providing some points. But, um, uh, you know, the Golden State Warriors have not shot the ball very well, particularly in Game 2 and for the first half of Game 3 last night. However, they did figure it out somewhat in that second half and did get back to within one before it kind of fell apart on them uh, toward the end. And Steph Curry kind of found, a, uh, found another gear, too, in that second half and suddenly started hitting shots from all over the gym. So I wouldn't count Golden State out yet. I do think that uh, that second half last night, they kind of got it back together again and demonstrated the kind of team that they've been all year. I, I still maintain that one guy can't beat five, and I think that uh, if Golden State can figure out a defensive way to stop everybody else, even if Le- LeBron goes off for triple doubles, it still isn't going to be enough for the Cavs to pull this off. But, John, if there is one man, well, I agree. If there is one man, he would be the one. I, absolutely. I would agree with that. But uh, I do think that, uh, uh, it, it, to me, it's just somewhat unlikely that in the end, it, you know, one guy is going to be five and, and allow this story to have the kind of happy ending that uh, most people seem to want it to have. Well, John, how about this? If you look at the stats through three games, LeBron James is not shooting that well. No, he's not, but he is taking a, he's taking a ton of shots. Yeah, and, 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 uh, and that brings to the point, John. You've got to believe that he's going to have a good shooting game. And if, and if he does, oh, my God, what well, we will see. Well, I agree, and that's why stopping the other four guys on the court with him really does become a priority for Golden State. If they can't stop the other four guys, then uh, this thing is, is going to slip away from them. And I think that Steve Kerr does need to make some, some defensive adjustments to allow the other four guys on the floor with James uh, to not be the factor that they've been. Uh, you know, Matthew Delavadova, as I said, has done a great job guarding Steph Curry, and I do think that that's something that Kerr has got to find a way to fix. He's got to. Well, John, here's a question for you on the NBA Finals. Uh, you want to tell me who the hell Matthew Delavadova is? Well, he's a kid who went to college at St. Mary's out in, uh, in California. He's from Australia. Uh, he's one of those kids that uh, played West Coast basketball out there in, in California and uh, had a pretty good four-year career uh, for St. Mary's and uh, was uh, an undrafted free agent that the Cleveland Cavaliers were able to sign. And he has become, through hard work and determination, uh, has become a mainstay of that uh, team this year. And it's really... Uh, stepped it up defensively to a level that uh, I'm not sure people thought he possessed, but uh, it appears that he does. 
And here's, here's the amazing thing now. Now, you look at this guy playing. It's like you don't even really look like you belong, athletically and all, in the NBA. But it's guys like this that provide, as LeBron said, that grit. That, that that every loose ball, we talked earlier about Kurt Rambis' clothesline, but also the fact that there wasn't a loose ball Kurt Rambis never liked. There, there, there wasn't a, a dive to the floor he ever had a problem with. And this Delavadova kid apparently doesn't have that problem either, and it helps LeBron James with their other teammates as they feed off energy like that because you've got to think, if this guy could pull it off, well, I, I can contribute something, and you'll see the likes of Tristan Thompson. You know, maybe he's not, and I, I, well, not maybe, he's not any offensive threat whatsoever, except when he gets a loose ball under the basket all by himself, basically. But he is a big-time defender. He is a big-time rebounder. So he's doing his job. You look at Iman Shumpert and J.R. Smith, who come from the New York Knicks, who did nothing but lose, lose, and lose. But, you know, Smith, of course, being the erratic player that he is, that's streaky when streaky is. You never know what you're going to get from J.R. Smith. But if he's hot, J.R. Smith has showed even in these 2015 playoffs that he can light up in a few minutes and will basically take over a game. Iman Shumpert, uh, watching him closely, playing with the New York Knicks, has always been a good defensive player. Uh, pride and prides himself on his defense. You now sat, you now see Iman Shumpert uh, creating several of his shots, pulling up from uh, deep from twos, pulling up from three point range, and showing that even he has range. And it, it just rubs off on his players. Most of all, John, you look at a guy like Timofey Mozgov, and this guy's playing like I don't know. He also played for the Knicks. How the hell are you guys playing for the Cavs in the NBA Finals and you played on my team that sucked so bad? Mozgov looks good, John, especially with the pick and roll to the basket, his movement to the basket, his ability to also, again, help to create his shot feed off the uh, assist from LeBron James or his other guards. The supporting cast is working for him. And, and that's the thing, and that's why I say, if, you know, that's what Golden State really, I think, from a defensive point of view, has to find a way to, to kind of turn off, and that's the supporting cast. Um, you know, I, I thought going into the series that Golden State had an advantage on the blocks because, you know, I, Andrew Bogan is just not a guy that uh, strikes fear into anybody's heart. He's, he's not a, a monster on the blocks. He's, he's not a rebounding machine. He'll get his points, but uh, I just don't think he plays tough enough. And unfortunately, you know, Draymond Green has found himself getting into foul trouble more often than not, which has really caused problems for Golden State and has allowed Mozgov to operate the way he has uh, down low. And uh, I think it's contributed to Golden State, uh, to uh, Cleveland rather, being able to, uh, you know, open up room for James and kind of spread things out to, to give him more of an opportunity uh, to be able to drive to the basket when he wants to, to be able to pull up and, and take that mid-range jump shot or even step back and take threes, which he's done. So I think that Mozgov's effectiveness has really allowed Cleveland's offense uh, to, uh, to expand itself, and consequently other people have also gotten involved. Yeah, and, and when you look at the Golden State side, you know, he talked about Steph Curry and what a season that he has shown us along with his splash brother, Clay Thompson. You saw Clay Thompson in game two. If it wasn't for, for foul trouble, like Clay was going to go for 50. 
That's what Easily. Yeah, he was going for 50. It wasn't because he had to sit for those stretches in foul trouble. And you, you get to players like, you know, I watched Steph Curry and throwing up those bombs and threes, unfortunately for me, John. I had a flashback. A flashback to the 1994 NBA Finals. When my beloved New York Knicks would finally been able to get over Michael Jordan and Chicago Bulls because Michael wasn't there and make it to the NBA Finals, rode the three-point shooting of John Starks, who shot brick after brick after brick. And as I slowly died in front of my television, I heard my head coach, Pat Riley, be asked, was at any point you think about pulling John? Maybe trying something else? Well, no. John's one of the players that brought us here, so I was going to play him. Well, I won't say on the air the words that I said to Pat Riley on my TV that night. Uh, part of it was a bleeping idiot and a bleeping, a bleeping bleeper and a bleeping, bleeping, bleeping bleeper. And you come fast forward to this NBA Finals. You, you see that Curry look. And when you have somebody like a Clay Thompson shooting like that, it's always for me that, you know, I know, I Steph, I, I know you're the shooter. It's okay to defer. I guess in the moment when you're a shooter, the mentality is to keep shooting. But you said it well, John. You know, Golden State looks good. They've looked good when they've gone to their small lineup. And their small lineup, of course, means they have to put Draymond Green in the five spot. And that, of course, essentially takes out Andrew Bogut from the lineup, which, of course, takes out Mozgov from the Cleveland lineup. But still, you know, I mean, Green's not a true five. And more than anything else, you saw in the second half uh, how Curry lit up uh, in the loss in game three. Hopefully it's a good sign for them. But remember, you know, well, LeBron James can go off too, so maybe they'll go off together and provide us. One more thing, John, we talk about. We talk about LeBron and what he's been able to do offensively. He's been able it, – it's a hook shot, a fadeaway, a turnaround, a banker, a three from the right, a three from the left, a three from the right baseline, a three from the left baseline, offensive rebound and a putback, a slam, an alley-oop. It has been such a tremendous show from LeBron James, but the most tremendous show of all, John, has been that Cleveland defense. You hold the Golden State Warriors under 100 points. Buddy, you got a chance to win. And I do think for Golden State, that's what they need to figure out, being able to put the ball in the basket. And I do think that one of the things that Steve Kerr did, especially in that fourth quarter that I think was promising, was giving David Lee a run. And I think that when Lee came into that game, it kind of changed the dynamic. Uh, a pretty good passer from, uh, from the blocks and, and a guy who can uh, uh, set people up, which I think he did in that fourth quarter. Uh, he did provide some energy to that team that up until that point they really didn't possess. And it almost pulled it off for them. But uh, I expect to see more of David Lee in the fourth, uh, fourth game tomorrow night because uh, I think he gave that offense the kind of spark that Kerr was looking for, and I suspect he'll get rewarded for it. You know, that's a great point that you brought up because another name you mentioned that was played for my New York Knicks, David Lee, a uh, former All-Star, a former uh, 10-11 rebound a night guy who could give you 16 and 10 a night. And... 
you know, I wondered as I watched David Lee on the bench during these games and during these playoffs, is there something wrong with Lee? Because when you look at the Golden State offense, John, he fits right into the flow of the Golden State offense. Well, I'm it, not sure he, he fits into the speed of that offense. Not the and speed. I think that's been a right, problem for him. Not the speed. And, and you're right. But the mold of the offense and how it's catered to Curry and Thompson because he's the kind of option you want on the floor. Yes, the speed is where it lacks, and you got to wonder if that's got a lot to do with it, but you're asking, gee, well, Mozgov is faster than him and some others. I guess the guy's pretty slow, but you were right. He provided a spark, and I think that if you're going to start making adjustments, if you're Steve Kerr, one of those adjustments would be maybe I should think about incorporating uh, David Lee more into this game because he was very, very effective. Yeah, he was, absolutely. And and I do think that – I think it's the up-and-down aspect of the way Golden State wants to play that I think gets David Lee into trouble with that unit because I just don't think he possesses the foot speed to be able to play that type of a game. But considering the way that game was going, and look, the Cavaliers had a 20-point lead in the third quarter, I think Curry decided why not. And they threw him in there and, and to give himself an idea of what could happen. And the next thing you know, it goes from 20 down to 1 – and I do think Lee made a significant contribution with his ability to distribute the basketball where it needed to be and to give guys open shots. Uh, I thought he played pretty well defensively. I thought he was able to, uh, again, give that team a, a spark and a different look that at, uh, up until that point they just didn't have. And as I said, it almost worked, and I do expect that he'll get more minutes tomorrow night. Yeah, you would think so. You would think so, and, and that the Golden State Warriors and uh, – Head coach Steve Kerr will look at the film in the second half and see what it is that, that was working for them in the second half. Of course, what works for them all the time is when Steph Curry is on, and he seemed to find his shot there. I like the way, especially that very difficult shot late in the game as he was coming off the screens uh, from the top of the well, game. Well, and that was the other part of it, too. I thought the Golden State offense really did not only set one screen for him, but in multiple cases it was double screens and it was triple screens to try and keep Del Vadova off him. And I do think that's probably something that will continue into game four as well. They've got to find a way to get Steph Curry open looks. That's where he's his most dangerous. Uh, and to be able to do that, you're going to have to set screens for him. And so, uh, you know, maybe that's where a big body like Ali can come in and set screens, and, uh, and maybe you can do some things off those screens that might give uh, the Cavaliers' defense something else to think about. Exactly, exactly, John, exactly. And uh, getting close to the bottom of the hour here is, of course, our uh, flagship show, the NGSC Weekly. But before we go there, John, our top finals moments. Uh, I look back on the NBA finals. And, of course, for me, the very first memory that comes to mind was when Willis Reed was injured in the 1970 NBA Finals against the Los Angeles Lakers. And and, and and as a Knicks fan, as a little kid and a Knicks fan, wondering, like all other Knicks fans, what are we going to do now? Our captain's gone. And he won't be here for Game 7. And somehow we're going to have to find a way, but against this Laker team? And of course... The opening moments of Game 7 in Madison Square Garden as the captain walked out on the floor, or should I say, limped heavily 
onto the floor, hit his first two shots, and basically him coming in and his, his entrance overshadowed a 36-point, 19-rebound night by one Walt Clyde Frazier. That was my first NBA Finals memory. My, my second and probably most favorite of all was watching an 18-year-old kid from the state of Michigan play five positions the day before he got on the team plane and he saw that there was a seat empty. That seat belonged to Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. He says that the Laker teammates were on the plane and everybody was looking down and sad and gloomy and the young man by the name of Irving Johnson, or as we know him as Magic, looked at all the Laker players and coaches and all and said, hey, there's no need to fear. Magic is here. And as other Laker players would later say, they wanted to grab that young boy strapped to a seat, told him to shut up. We watched as Magic Johnson Again, played the one, the two, the three, the four, and the five for 42 points, 15 rebounds, seven assists, and for me, John, the single greatest performance I have ever seen in my life on a basketball court. As a rookie, the Los Angeles Lakers and Magic Johnson were NBA champions, and there are many others. John, your, your memories of the NBA Finals. Well, mine goes back to 1976 and a hot, sweaty night at, uh, at, uh, at Boston Garden, the, the famous triple overtime game between uh, Boston and Phoenix uh, that uh, was played in, in, in an absolute sweat box. Uh, I, I think it's, it's still one of the great uh, final games of all times. Uh, uh, Glenn McDonald coming off the bench with the Celtics, I believe, scoring 10 points in that third overtime. Uh, to help the Celtics win. Uh, Paul Westfall for Phoenix hitting a couple of buzzer beaters to extend that game. Garfield Hurd did the same thing. Uh, it was it was one of those nights that uh, I think if you were there, <laughs> it, it's, it's one of those games that you'll never, uh, ever forget. Uh, but uh, to me, that's always been, I think, the greatest... Uh, the greatest final game that I've ever seen uh, was that particular, I believe it was game, uh, I want to say it was game four uh, of, the, of that particular NBA final, but uh, that uh, has always had a lasting uh, uh, memory for me and for those people that have NBA TV, uh, from time to time they will show that game. I don't ever think they show it from start to finish. I think they pick it up from the second half and, and show it from there right through the three overtimes. But it, it truly is one of uh, uh, the great games of all time. It was uh, a game of attrition uh, because uh, uh, the Garden was sold out that night. It was one of those hot, sticky New England nights. And uh, the Celtics had this thing about not using air conditioning in the Garden as well. So uh, you, uh, you had to do this old school if you were going to beat them. And uh, it, it truly is, one of I think, one of the greatest games of all time. Dan Patrick talked about that on his show this morning when he mentioned remembering the times in the Boston Garden dressed in a, shoot, in a suit. And like he said, that was a three-piece suit back then. 
with a top. Yeah, you didn't want to do that too, too many times, especially when you got to the uh, uh, the late spring and early summer. That was never a wise idea. Yeah, he talked about how he and his other press cohorts would be in there, like he said, losing the fat, sweating it right off. Absolutely. And, and of course, for many of us, as we've gone on through the years in the 1980s, we'll remember the battles of the Los Angeles Lakers and the finals of the Philadelphia Sixers and fee five fo bum as Moses Malone, Dr. J, Bobby Caldwell, and others. Bobby Jones. Bobby Jones. Who was the Caldwell guy? Uh, someone else. Caldwell yes, Jones. You Caldwell Jones. Caldwell Jones. Bobby Jones. The Jones brothers. There it is. As they made their way through the playoffs at fifteen and one to win the 1983 NBA Finals. I got to watch that in boot camp as I was serving the United States Navy waiting for a medical discharge and uh, watched the Philadelphia Sixers basically stomp the Lakers and everybody else. You know, I think the current Sixer fan base would love to see those days returned. I really suggest the current Sixer fan base go to YouTube and and really yeah, I, I I would agree because uh, it may be a while before the glory days uh, come back. It might be old by the time they start winning again. And of course, as you go through the years in basketball, you you, you know as long as you lived it, if you didn't live it, you've heard it. And of course, number twenty three and and Michael Jordan and and what he was able to do and and this was one man that. You just knew, John. You just knew that the only way you're going to stop this guy is if he doesn't play. It it was just Jeff Van. Well, Gun, Jeff Van. You know, Gun. you can ask Craig Elo about that one. So, uh, <laughs> you know, the, yeah. the jump shot that he hit in Elo's face, and and I'm sure Elo to this day is still convinced that he couldn't have defended that any better, but it still didn't matter. And John, you just said it. That was great defense by Elo. It was. It was. I don't she think was. anybody has ever complained about the way that Elo tried to stop that last shot. She was all over Jordan. And Jordan hit that shot like he was by himself. Yeah, it did. And uh, <laughs> I'm sure it's a, it's a nightmare that Elo, unfortunately, has revisited far too many times. The magic of watching the San Antonio Spurs, an organization that does it with class an organization that does it the same way every single year. It's a great story today about the 2013 San Antonio Spurs and their loss in seven games after the heartbreaker in game six to LeBron James, Dwayne Wilde, well, Bosch. That was a series that they had right in the palm of their hands, and all they had to do was finish it. Oh, and, and for they, some reason, they couldn't figure out a way to finish it, and unfortunately... It ended up being a painful loss. But I do think, you know, when you talk about the San Antonio Spurs, I think that's another organization that now is probably going to have to crash and burn and go all the way down to the bottom and work their way back up again. Considering the fact that they had 10 free agents on that roster this past year, it does appear that the run by the San Antonio Spurs has apparently come to an end and that they're going to have to begin the rebuilding process and how long will it take for the Spurs to get themselves back up to where they've been in the past? Which made last year so special because after they went through what they went through, remember, John, how many years lately have we heard 
well, the Spurs are too old. The Spurs are done. They're not going to win anymore. And they come back last year and basically make a mockery of the Heat in the NBA Finals and win what, you're right, John, will probably be the last NBA title of this group's existence. But, John, haven't they said that recently about them? Well, look, I, I, I do think that that's the way the NBA is set up, though, that you have your run, and when your window of opportunity comes to an end, you have to go to the bottom and work your way back up again. Uh, they have been smart over the years in being able to draft the players that they've been able to fit into the system so that maybe uh, the process of having to build their way back up again won't take as long as it has for other teams, but they're going to have to go through it. Everybody does. And we'll start, and of course I went right past the break, folks. You are listening to, of course, the NGSC Weekly, the flagship show. On NGSCSports.com, of course, brought to you by NGSC Sports. Please remember, as I always say, the current content on the website, the website itself, NGSCSports.com. Check out our shows on the player on the website. And remember, as we did things in the past, I would tell you listeners out there, there's something coming. There's something coming. Don't know when, but there's something coming. And you know why, folks? Because at NGSC Sports, you tell them, John. Oh, we never stop is is what you always keep telling me and, and everybody else. So I'm, I'm assuming that that uh, really does uh, apply to uh, to what you're talking about when you say that something's coming. We never stop. As uh, the staff of writers always chugging it out. The show hosts, the co-hosts, more chugging. And believe me, us peoples upstairs... We're chugging every day, too, because we never stop. John, got a question for you. What could it be? Well, first of all, you know, there's a little saying, funny saying, a song, something that said, why is everybody always picking on me? Well, I got a question for you along those lines. Well, why when a pitcher wants to pitch a no-hitter, why do they have to pick on my New York match? John, I was hesitant in this. 13th, in his 13th Major League Baseball start, pitches another no-hitter for the San Francisco Giants against, as we say down south, in case y'all ain't figured it out, against my Mets. John, you talk about this because I don't want to. Well, let's face it. I mean, the San Francisco Giants, the last thing they need is more pitching, right? And it appears that they just found some more last night. Uh, he... Uh, he uh, he hit three batters, uh, so he didn't throw a perfect game, but he did strike out 11, didn't walk anybody. There was one pretty good defensive play that was made. I believe it was in the seventh or eighth inning. Um, he started the ninth inning off by hitting the first batter he faced, and then he would go ahead and he would get Curtis Grandison looking on a strike three, and then the next two guys he got uh, swinging strike threes on to finish off the no-hitter. To me, the amazing part of this is it's the fourth year in a row that the San Francisco Giants have had a pitcher throw a no-hitter. And none of them are named Madison Bumgarner, which I think is really the most surprising part. Yeah, yeah you would think, yeah, by now, yeah, uh, the bum would have had one for now. 
And well, the way, especially the way the bum pits in the, in, in the postseason, the way you put that team on his back, which I still think is uh, on, uh, one of the more amazing performances I've seen uh, in recent uh, baseball times. You know, you're right, John. We talked about the amazing performance of Secretariat. The fact that American Farrell was able to do what hasn't been done in 37 years. And, man. Bumgarner pitched his ass off. <laughs> I mean, this guy. There's no, there's no denying that. I mean, when he came in in Game Seven early on when it looked like the Giants were in trouble and it looked like the Royals were finally gonna, you know, break through and 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 win that championship. When he came out of that bullpen, uh, you could do. I, I know. Uh, how much more? How many more bullets did he have in his arm? I think was the question that some people may have had at the time, but he quickly answered left. those questions. Do you even have an arm left, John? I I don't know. I, but apparently he did because he just dominated the rest of that game, and the Giants went on and won. Unbelievable! And it begs the wonder. You just said, "Oh, that's all they needed was more pitching. They just found more pitching." Uh, folks. And they got, you know, and Jake Peavy is on a rehab assignment for their AAA affiliate, so eventually he'll be back probably second half of the year as, uh, I would think, a, a fifth starter uh, or whatever else that they, they feel a need for Jake Peavy to do for them. Although I don't think that Peavy can go deep into games, I think he can give them five or six innings that uh, would be good enough. So, uh, you know, once again, the Giants and Bruce Bochy are, are putting themselves in position to make another run that uh, – Despite the fact that they don't have the kind of offense that you would expect a potential world championship caliber team to have, they can pitch and they can catch and they can throw, and that appears to be good enough. And uh, ESPN.com's Matt Marone has a very good uh, a very good article, John. Really, oh, okay. It starts this way: it says Chris Heston. Slowpoke. That's right. It took a whopping 13 starts for the San Francisco Giants rookie to finally record his first no hitter on Tuesday night against the New York Mets. He goes on to say that that's not fast enough to even make a dent in the top 10 of the earliest Major League Baseball no hitters. And but he does become the first rookie since Clay Buckholz to pull it off. Absolutely. Now, we look at the list, John. Got some interesting names for you. See if they ring any bells. On June 18, 1967, Don Wilson of the Houston Astros pitched a no-hitter in his 12th Major League start. Against some guy named Aaron. Oh, yeah, Hank Aaron and his Braves club. Uh, he struck Aaron out three times and route to 15 strikeouts that day. Uh, I've got a name for you that also did it in his 12th start, John. Kent Merker, Atlanta Braves. Yes. During that ugly 1994 season. Yeah, those were the days when the Braves were lucky if they put 5,000 people into Fulton County Stadium. <laughs> you got that right. Yeah. Uh, of course, lucky for Merker, he he would make the rotation next year where he served as the fifth starter behind Greg Maddox, Tom Glavin, and John Smokes, to say a few Hall of Fame names. What a, yeah. what a pitching staff. 
It's, it's just a pity that that staff didn't win more World Maybe Series than they did. Won more. There's just you know I was thinking the same thing. There's one of those teams, John, that they they had one of the most unbelievable runs in sports ever, and but they just didn't take full advantage of that window of opportunity. One title, John, on September third, two thousand one. St. Louis Cardinals pitcher in his 11 start, Bud Smith, shut down the San Diego Padres at Qualcomm Stadium. I'd be curious what the lineup was for the Padres that day. Ah, I like that. Very good. I, I, I bet it was a lot of minor leaguers. I'm just guessing, but I bet it was. And here's a date and a name for you, John. On April 27, 1973, the game was being played in Detroit. Six walks, a wild pitch, but no hits by the Detroit Tigers as they were befuddled by one Steve Busby. Yes, Kansas City Royals, yes. Uh-huh. Uh, I'm going to go down the list a little bit and go down to the eighth start of his career. He says, the biggest name on our list, a future Cy Young winner. MVP and six-time All-Star. Remember in late 1970, September 21st against the Minnesota Twins as a fourth-inning walk to Harmon Killebrew would be the only blemish on a no-hitter pitch by one Vita Blue. Vita Blue in, in his days with the Oakland A's uh, was a dominant, as dominant a pitcher as... Uh, uh, as anybody could have seen in those days, the part of a rotation that included uh, Catfish Hunter and uh, Rolly Fingers was in that bullpen. Uh, <laughs> boy, I, you know, when Vita Blue was out there on that mound, uh, if you didn't have your A game, he was going to blow you away in a very convincing fashion, and he did more often than not. And the year before that, in 1969, the Montreal Expos had themselves a guy who in his only in his fifth start, Pitched a no-hitter, and that was one Bill Stoneman, John. 1969, the year of my miracle match. Uh, I can't say I remember much about Bill Stoneman. Uh, those must have been the days when the ex- – uh, that would have been in Jerry Park yes, in sir. Montreal. There you go. Yeah. There you go. And I got Which another- is now, by the way, a tennis uh, complex. <laughs> about that? Yeah, I know. Another blast from the past for you, John, in, in his fourth. Major League start in 1971, April 16th, excuse me, 1972. The Chicago Cubs threw out a pitcher by the name of Burt Hooten. Wow. Uh, I, I think most people that remember Burt Hooten remember him from his days with the Dodgers more than they do with the Cubs. Absolutely. It was opening day, Wrigley Field against the Phillies. And yes, uh, he threw his no-hitter and later went on to help the Dodgers to three and out pennants. I'm guessing the wind was blowing in that day at Wrigley. You think? Yeah, I'm thinking. It was blowing in recently. If it, if it was the other way, that that's not happening. Recently, uh, as recently, uh, you know, we've seen some others you mentioned Clay Buckholz, of course, in his second start. There was another guy back on July 24, 1989. Uh, made his major league debut. 
didn't retire a batter, allowed three runs on two home runs, two walks before getting the hook. Then two years later, one Wilson Alvarez lost the beauty of a gem, that no-hitter of his uh, when he played for the Chicago White Sox. Yeah, Wilson Alvarez was an up-and-down pitcher. When he was good, he was very good. And unfortunately, when he was bad, boy, that was... He stunk the play. Yeah, he sure did. I mean, that's the what I remember the most about Wilson Alvarez. Yeah, it's too bad, too, because on those days when he had his eight-game, boy, you, you thought this kid could be a 20-game winner. But unfortunately, you knew every time he took the mound, this is probably going to be a bad day. And if it's a bad day, it's going to be a really bad day. Absolutely. Yeah, very good, John. That was very true about him. And last but not least, as we close the show, we are definitely not going to forget. We are at a time right now, of course, if we've mentioned the NBA Finals and where we are right now. But let's try to remember. That well, you got the NHL Finals going on as we speak, and how is that going? That at this point right now, John, thank you for the lead-in. With 2.44 to go in the second period in Chicago, the Blackhawks and the Lightning are tied at one. And, of course, John, this is a battle between a young Tampa Bay, like a young, fast, aggressive Lightning team uh, versus, as I said, a team that is playing with the heart of a champion. But I do think that that defensive unit, the four-man unit that Joe Quinville's been putting out there, I think it's finally starting to wear. I think that uh, Tampa Bay has taken a, a simpler approach, which is to dump and chase and make sure that they nail those defensemen every time that puck goes deep into in the Blackhawk. And I think it was the approach that Anaheim tried to use, but for some reason, when they got to game six and seven of that conference final, they backed off, and I still don't understand why. But it appears that Tampa Bay has figured out that if you play the dump and chase and make your hits, that you're going to wear that four-man unit down, and eventually you're going to give yourself some opportunities in front of that net that they will cash in on. To me, Tampa Bay, the reason why they're in the Stanley Cup Finals is because they've won eight out of 11 games on the road. It's, it's by far the most impressive statistic when you talk about this team, especially given the fact that they're five and six at home. They play a, a focused game on the road. They play a simple game on the road, and it has worked. And you saw in game two uh, with Tampa Bay uh, with the offense, because as far as the Lightning is concerned, they're going to be they're most effective, obviously, when they're using their speed and their aggressiveness. Obviously, when they're putting pressure in the Chicago zone. One of the things that's really fascinated me is whatever the problem with Ben Bishop is, yeah, I don't get that either. I don't know what's going on there either. That, that that was really weird. There's no doubt that was a really weird moment when he just unceremoniously left that game, then came back, and then left it again and never came back. I, I have no idea what's going on. And you're going to have to wait till the end of the Stanley Cup Finals to find out the story. Well, it's cost him uh, game four as uh, the young uh, Russian Vasilevsky uh, is in goal for Tampa Bay. And you got to wonder what it does. This stuff... This is a young 20-year-old Russian who made his debut, his NHL debut, in the Stanley Cup Finals in the third period. Made a couple and of... And in the most unlikely fashion. I'm sh- uh, now, 
again, you don't know what the team knows or doesn't know about Bishop's situation, and you're not going to know until the finals are over. So maybe there was a hint as that game was going on last Saturday night that Bishop might be in a bit of a physical trouble and that the possibility existed that some goaltending maneuvering was going to have to take place, which it eventually did. But uh, he played that third period about as well as he could have given the situation and the circumstances that he was put into um, and then played, uh, you know, and then Bishop came back for game three. So uh, I'm not sure what's going on. There. I, to me, it's a fascinating story that I'd love to find out the answer to. And, of course, when you're playing hockey with, with a rookie goalie, you know, that's, that's enough in itself. You're, but, again, it goes back to the simple game that I think Tampa Bay on the road has played throughout these playoffs, which has allowed them to win the amount of games that they've won and pretty much be in every game they play. This is not a team that overextends itself. Granted, they've got the speed, but they, uh, they really do, especially on the road, play a very simple and effective game. Well, it, 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 time's going to tell right here. You know, I, I've been saying it the entire NHL playoffs. You've got to find a way to break the will of a winner. You've got to, you know, Chicago is, just knows what to do. They sit back. You can't count them out in any way. But, but I've got to agree with you. It looks like maybe Quinville has at least gotten his team where he needs to. And it's going to be very interesting right here because, of course, this game being played in Chicago, Tampa Bay was able to win game three in Chicago. Obviously, the Blackhawks can ill afford to go down 3-1. And, John, as good as they are and as much championship spirit as they have in them, I don't think they can come back down 3-1 against this Lightning team. I would agree, and I think the minutes the guys like Duncan Keith are playing, and I talked about that four-man unit. I mean, you know, Keith is playing over 30 minutes a game. At some point, you just run out of gas. Uh, I, I just find it amazing that they've been able to play as well as they have with the amount of minutes that they have. It does appear that Quinville doesn't necessarily trust some of his complementary players, and, and consequently he's been just going to the post with his horses game after game after game. And although it's gotten him to the Stanley Cup Finals, you do wonder at some point, you know, does the, the well run dry? And I do think that Tampa Bay's dump and chase idea that they pretty much started to develop in game two, I think is the way to do this and just pound those guys into submission and hope that they put up the white flag, and I think they will. And that's where I was trying to lead you in when I said it's working because obviously it's, it's worked to this point. And you brought up a really good point about the minutes that Duncan Keith is putting in. And they've been highlighting that throughout the series as well. And I think for good reason. Yeah, you can't, you know, how, how, I mean, the numbers he's putting up as far as minutes is ridiculous for a yeah, regular it's insane. It's absolutely insane. You, you don't play 31 minutes a game in the Stanley Cup playoffs. So you just don't do it because you're, not, you're, not you're playing gonna, every other night to begin with. Yeah, you're not going to make it. It's too grueling. I mean, 31 minutes. When I saw that the first time, it was like, you had to think that it was an error somewhere and that somebody got something wrong somewhere. But, but again, this is where not having Michael Roosevelt has really hurt the Blackhawks because that would have been the fifth guy that would have taken some of these minutes away from Keith and Seabrook and so forth. But because he hasn't been available and Joel Quinville just doesn't have an option that he feels comfortable with, this is what he's doing. You know, and they better pull this one out. It's the end of the second. They're tied at one. And they better pull this one out because otherwise, like we just said, you know, with that style that he's using, you lose this one, you're going to have to win three in a row. You're not going to be able to use that to win three in a row. 
But you know what, though? With the way Tampa Bay has played at home, and they've been an under-500 team in the Stanley Cup playoffs at home at 5-6, and six, who knows? Maybe the Blackhawks could win Game 5 Saturday night and bring it back to Chicago and maybe you know win Game 6 and, and really put the pressure on Tampa Bay in a one-game win-it-all type situation. Maybe that could uh, still work for them, but I don't think it's a chance you want to take. No. No, you sure don't. But it's going to be interesting. Again, folks, we're in the end of the second period, of course, of game four of the Stanley Cup Finals with the Chicago Blackhawks and the Tampa Bay Lightning tied at one. Of course, Lightning are up two games to one. Very interesting to see how this one's going to end. And I'm going to park myself somewhere, John, here in a minute and make sure that I catch the uh, end of this game so I can uh, write up a little something, of course, folks, on the last 48 in the morning as I'll make sure to talk about this uh, Stanley Cup Finals, the NBA Finals as well, and we always figure out another little topic for you to talk about, about for me to talk about and write about, but I promise you it won't be about my Mets being no hit. I can promise you that. John, has been an absolute pleasure this evening. Of course, we've had a lot of fun as always and uh, got deep into our NBA Finals memories, and uh, we were able to dig deep back uh, to when, of course, the NBA Finals was not even live on TV. And we talk- you know, I had forgotten about that, but that's true. Uh, that was uh, one of the interesting things about the NBA at that time that uh, I think the people nowadays would have a hard time understanding. Well, I remember it, John, because, again, it was on CBS. That's right. 11, that's right. 11.30 p.m. Eastern Time on Take Delay. And I remember clearly because there were times I got caught watching it. And, well, let's just say uh, my dad didn't shake my hand when he caught me at 12.15, 1 o'clock in the morning, watching the second quarter of a take delayed NBA Finals, and I got to wake up five hours later for school. I do think that for those people, for those cities that were in the finals at that time, you got the live version of it, and everybody else got the no, tape delayed version later no, on. It was tape delayed. Eight. Even for those that were, even Eight. for those that were in the finals at the time. Yep, the NBA Finals, the NBA Championship Series was not shown live. It was hmm. shown on tape delay across America. Huh. I've forgotten that. Yeah, and of course you had to remember if you lived in a little city back then, you better hope uh, CBS worked. Oh yeah, that's true. You're right. You had to because if it didn't, then uh, it was the radio or nothing. And another, another thing these kids don't understand, John, you remember something that these kids have no clue about, that folks, TV used to stop. Yes, that's right. If you didn't have uh, 24-hour programming, that's correct. It usually was 2 a.m., as I remember. TV would stop, and the screen would go gray. and Yep. You get that, that noise. You get that sound for a few minutes, yes. Yeah, that sound, yes. And, uh, we we had poltergeist before poltergeist. Yes, that's, <laughs> that's a good way of putting it. But uh, you're right, yes. Uh, yeah, TV ended, my grandson looks me in the face and says, Papa, did you, did you just hear what you just said? And I said, yeah, did I say something wrong? He said, Papa, you said that TV used to stop. <laughs> Seriously. And he's looking at my face and he's thinking, I think that, I think my granddad is serious. He said, what do you mean TV stop? How how does it stop? It's fascinating to watch this kid ask me, how does TV stop? 
I think it's even better to try and explain it. Yeah, I told them they went off the air. They signed off. The show would end, and then you would see the American flag. Right. They played a Star Spangled Banner. You'd see the American flag, and that was it. Until Star I think Spangled. it was six o'clock the next morning. Star Spangled Banner would play, and when it was over, the screen went gray and it broke in pieces, and all you heard was. Yep. And then at 6 o'clock the next morning, it magically reappeared. 6 a.m., if you had it on the only channels you had, which was ABC, NBC, and CBS, your local, right. your local news was the first thing you would wake up to. Yep, that's right. And then it was usually cartoons. And yes, and those were the good old days. And Abbott and Costello on Saturday mornings. Uh, yes, or the Three Stooges, if you were a fan of them. All of the Three Stooges. And back then, John, we were a fan of everything because it was all new. I didn't care if it was Mary Tyler Moore, Andy Griffith. It, it, it just pick Father Knows Best. You know, you, you could probably do a show sometime on the, there are some local, or at least in my area, local television stations that are starting to uh, run what they now call the nostalgic programming, which is all those shows and then some. Absolutely, John. When times were much simpler, when things were more quiet, or at least in the world, we believed that they were because there was no social media, there was no instant communication. The only time... We used the word mail was mail, mail that was mailed through the postal system. The letter E never preceded the word mail, and if it did, we wouldn't know what the hell anyone was talking about. Yeah, we'd stay away from it for sure, absolutely. And this has been another edition of the flagship show, the NGSC Weekly I've been your guest host this evening, Ralph Garcia, CEO of NGSC Sports, and I've been joined by my good friend and, of course, the co-host of the NGSC Weekly, John Doucette. Uh, so do I get my two other guys back next week? Or, uh, uh, are they, uh, the words out of my mouth. Next week, ah. stay tuned. As I've done two shows this week, folks, and the old man, the CEO, is through for now. So next week you will have your trio back of Josh Zimmer, wow. Montel Hardy, and... John said, along with whatever guests and whatever the hell they do, because at this moment, I want to remind everybody that you have been listening to NGSC Sports Radio. Of course, remember, you can always catch us on our heart radio speaker, iTunes, TuneIn. Check out our website at NGSCSports.com to read up on what is going on in the sports landscape. Follow us on Twitter at NGSC Sports. Like us on Facebook. We're on LinkedIn and Google Plus, too. That and so much more. NGSC Sports, we never stop. John, my friend, thank you for joining me this evening. Everybody, thank you for joining us this evening. Keep listening, and one more time, remember, John, you tell them. We never stop. We, we really, really never stop, so we don't want you to stop either. God bless everybody. Have a good night, John. Talk to you soon. Remember, tomorrow night, it's Thursday, and it's one of your favorite shows at NGSC Sports, of course, that's Big Jim and Three Count Thursday. And that's followed by Gridiron Talk with CJ and Simon. Thank you, everybody. Have a great night, John. Thank you for joining us. We're a few minutes over, which means I'm having a lot of fun. So I'm going to get the heck off out of here right now. As we say down south, well, holla at y'all.
Maybe we won't holler at y'all, but it won't let me terminate the call. Click, click, click. Have a good night, folks. <laughs>